0: On veterinary anesthesia nerds, thank you for joining me again for another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast where we talk about all things anesthesia, pain management, and how we can make our patient lives better. I am joined today by a pretty fantastic guest. If you happen to be down in Miami and went to the directions in veterinary medicine symposium uh, that we were at, you will know our next guest. She is not only a fantastic BTS in emergency and critical care. But she also is, listen to how badass this is. She is the Director of Emergency and Critical Care at the Animal Medical Center in New York City. What? That is amazing. I am talking about none other than Feliza Lopez, VTSECC. Thank you so much for joining us on the veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast.
1: Thank you for that wonderful introduction.
0: I try to make really good intros, like like the shit that people are doing is really impressive. What you're doing and where you are in your career is very impressive, and I think that we should celebrate that. So kudos to you. You're making a difference not only in patient lives, but also setting a precedence for future veterinary technician specialists, so I love it. I love all of it. All right, so Felisa, what we are going to talk about today is... Really, since you are VTS ECC and you have probably spent a lot of time in the ICU, um, what we're going to talk about is kind of nursing care. So not necessarily anesthetically, but after anesthesia, because we know that the anesthetic event or the whole thing doesn't stop as soon as our vaporizer goes off. So I want to talk to you about some tips and tricks that you're going to have to make sure our patients are as comfortable, as healthy all of these things as possible when they go to ICU post-surgery. And one of the things that I really wanted to pick your brain about, because I heard you lecture on it down in Miami, was this aspect of nutrition and how nutrition plays into patients healing from surgery um, and all of these things. So, uh, yeah, that's really what I wanted to talk with you about today and how we can make sure that our patients not only are up and eating faster, um but making sure they're getting the right nutrients to help support them uh, in healing post surgery. So, Felisa, if I came to you and I'm dropping off a patient post, let's say this is a, you know, a Labrador retriever that has eaten a sock and You know, maybe it was potentially a a perf and it was a bit of a septic abdomen by the time we got in there, but we removed it and it had a foreign body surgery. Um, I don't know. Maybe we could get crazy and maybe it had a little RNA in there as well. Uh, And anesthetically, it did okay. And now we're dropping it off into the ICU. As an ICU tech, first off, let's talk about the handoff and the communication. You know, what do you recommend as far as do you use a checklist? Do you have some kind of internal communication system? How do we make sure that the information from the surgery gets to where it needs to go in in the ICU? Step one, communication.
1: Perfect. That's a great question. So we do have a process for handoff for surgical patients before they enter the ICU. We They are recovered in a recovery ward or the beach is what we call it at the AMC. So they're fully recovered post-surgery, make sure that they're up to temp, that their blood pressure is okay, that their surgeon and their surgical team has assessed them and feel like they're stable enough or they're appropriate enough and awake enough to go into the ICU. Of course, if they have done poorly under anesthesia, they go directly to us. But before they come, they call us and they give us the same signalment that you just went through, like what the procedure was. And then when the nurse enters the ward, then they give us a more detailed um, description of how the patient did under anesthesia and if there's any other considerations. So for us on the ICU end, we make sure that our, our cage or our run in the situation is nicely padded and clean for this patient. And as soon as they gurney them in, I'm the first thing that I do and that our team does is make sure that our catheters are patent, that the patient is soiled, or if we need to uh, Clean them before they enter the cage because, you know, that for this specific patient, it's a larger animal. So as they're waking up, the last thing you want to do is have to move them to give them a bath and things like that. Make sure that uh, – double check that they got their post-op pain medication and assess their pain score. Super important to make sure they're nice and comfy when they're waking up. Um, and then any other – you know, past partner medical history and things like that, we need to know, does this patient have a history of seizures? Or is this patient, you know, reactive to other animals or whatever it is. So that's kind of the, the handoff. And it does go on a form. And now we're transitioning to digital forms. But that has that all, all that information. So every vitals every five minutes, like I said, the last dose of pain medication, and we have um, electronic treatment sheets in our ward as well. So we can input that data and just continue treatments on that patient.
0: Yeah, I love what you were saying about making sure that, you know, the next people know when the last dose of pain medication was, because I definitely have seen in my experience that things get miscommunicated and now we have, you know, a double dose of methadone or something on board that we didn't necessarily. So I, I love that idea. Now, let's talk about it a little bit further. Um, and the, again, the reason this came up is because I, I really loved the presentation that you gave on nutrition, how nutrition plays a role... You know, just in patients healing from surgery. And also, one thing that I didn't really think about before your lecture is really. You know these stressful events, and are we potentially creating any kind of like food aversions? And when should we offer food? And if our patients are nauseous, I don't know. I have been in places where I've seen some pretty difficult uh, force feeding, so I'd love to get your your input on that as well. Um, Just talk to us about nutrition. You know, when should we when do we start feeding with these patients? What should we be feeding? How important is this? I want to know all the things.
1: Well, that's a great question as well. So I when I was putting together the lecture for DVM 360, I did a lot of reflection on what do I know about nutrition or what do I think is really important to know about it? And I thought back over the last 13 years when I first started in critical care, and I did a really bad job of addressing nutrition. You know, I think my focus was more on patient comfort and just making sure that they you know, we're up and moving, that they were getting their medications on time. I think when you're first starting, you're just like, I have to do treatments. Like you're not thinking about other things or it just, you know, it hasn't been passed on to you the importance of it. But now fast forward, you know, medicine is, vet med is changing like all the time, every five years, you know, we're just so different now than even when 2011, when I started in critical care. But what we know now is that the evidence shows that um, factoring in important nutrition, enteral nutrition, you know, when a patient's been sick or post-operative is going to be really, really important to getting these patients out of our clinic and decreasing morbidity and mortality. If you're more of a data-driven person that needs data to be motivated to comply, right, that's not our favorite word, just remember that um not addressing nutrition in these patients, in surgical patients or critically ill patients does have significant consequences that are directly correlated to increased morbidity and mortality. And specifically, those consequences are impaired immune function, bacterial translocation, impaired tissue repair, and altered drug metabolism. So knowing that that is directly correlated with that, what what are we going to think about as um ECC technicians you know as ER techs ICU techs like what's going to be important well if i had in you know abdominal surgery if i had a major surgery i kind of think of like what would be the first thing that i want to do well first i'd want to make sure that i'm recovering somewhere very comfortably i want to make sure that whatever's on me whether it's a catheter or bandaging is comfortable right i want to make sure that i have access to using the restroom so that i'm not soiled or if i need help gentle help to you know, alleviate myself. I can't, I soapbox about this a lot. Like I'm like the queen of the butt baths at ICU. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I feel, I, I always tell the animals, I'm like, feel, look good, feel good. Right. And husbandry is a hundred percent part of our job. And then what's the next thing? What's the next thing I do? I would want to do, I probably want to eat. I probably want to get a nice New York slice of pizza. And yes, New York city pizza is the best. I've been listening to your podcast. <laughs> um, and then obviously, You know,
0: coffee. I mean, Philly. Listen, we don't. We we have nothing in Philadelphia. Has nothing in the pizza game. So I'll tell you, like, we have good pizza here, um, but certainly, like, I'll let New York and Chicago and honestly, maybe even Detroit dish it out. Like, you guys, you got it, you got it. Uh, You know, definitely, we'll stick to our cheesecake. Cheese, steak, and soft pretzels here. Nice.
1: So then I would think about food. You know, I'd probably be thirsty and want to eat all my favorite foods again because I feel crummy or, you know, not, not my, 100% myself. And so our patients likely follow, follow a similar model. They're going to want to eat. And you have all these external factors, right? So pain, being in a weird place, understanding what all these multi-parameter equipment, things that are on them strange people. Maybe we don't carry their Stella and Chewies in the hospital. Like if my dog, Phoenix was hospitalized, I'd have to, I, I am now going to be that owner (laughs) to bring his food in to make sure they give him what he don't really eat. So there's, there's all these things. And I really didn't think about that until, you know, I started my VTS journey and I realized the importance of this. So I think things that we can do better is of course, making sure we touch our home bases, which are going to be pain management, comfort, um, and like the vitals and things like that. And, um, going to the bathroom and then focusing on on nutrition and how we deliver that is going to be v- based on the patient. So something like, let's say a jaw fracture or something that has an anatomic um, contraindication to giving food by mouth is going to be a consideration for a feeding tube, right? Our patient that we're talking about right now, our scenario, he did have significant intestinal surgery, he had an RNA, right? If I, if I remember correctly. So we're going to take that into consideration for when we start feeding him because we know that these patients could potentially de three days into hospitalization. So when do we start feeding? So what I've been taught by my critical care team is that as soon as we can, as soon as it's appropriate, as long as we've covered um, nause- nausea as well, because that could be something that maybe our pain meds causes or even just in general antibiotics. So give them the Cerenia. Anything that walks through the door gets Cerenia. Give them um, the Ondansetron, which is a nice uh, medication that I like to use, give them the protonics. feel like everything gets protonics now. And if, if the patient is allowed to have metoclopramide and the fluids and things like that. So as soon as possible is the answer. We don't, I agree with you. I really would get I would kind of cringe when I would see some of our newer clinicians that rotate and once a year try to force feed their animals. And I know that the intent is, you know, good there, but it really causes these animals to not want to eat at all. Or some um, some things that I would see some of our newer nurses trying to do, and I totally get it, is hiding the medications in the food. And then as soon as they figure out that that's in there, that's not going to complete, um, that's not going to get that medication into the animal as well.
0: Let's talk about some of these drugs, because I think that maybe if people are not familiar with these drugs that you're speaking of, um, for instance, I think Ondansetron is really, really fantastic. Uh, it was a game changer for me when I personally had surgery, but also like the protonics that you mentioned. Tell us what that is.
1: Definitely. So I'll kind of start with the, the the whole list, starting from the top of like what I would give first, like you're walking in for, you know, squinting, you're going to get sirenia. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So sirenia, our, our um, number one drug in vet med, it's an antiemetic, and that one acts centrally on the chemoreceptor trigger zone uh, and the vomiting center and peripherally on the gastrointestinal tract. And then pro- protonics or pantropazole is a proton pump inhibitor, So that one, I feel like we use pretty regularly in the ICU, at least um, where I work. Famotidine is another one that we can use. It's a H2 receptor antagonist. That's going to decrease your risk of gastric or intestinal ulceration or esophagitis. Metacoplamide or Reglin is another one that we use. That's prokinetic and antiemetic, And that's going to help with um, gastric motility disorders, GERD, nausea, vomiting. This is one that we have to be super cautious with with patients with GI obstruction, so the ones that come in through the ER, if we're suspicious of that, you know, it's not we don't give that one rather quickly, it's more like a post-operative thing. Or if you have brachhalic syndrome, that's kind of part of the protocol for surgery for them. Um, we also there is some there is some literature and I've been trying to dig a little deeper since our conference about contraindications and using it with patients with pancreatitis because they're are suspicious of um, the permeability and perfusion of the pancreas, but that's all i know about it and then ondansetron or zofran is the the last one that we use and that's going to that's a serotonergic antagonist and that's going to help improve nausea and control emesis i will say that we usually go for serenia first but when that doesn't cut it we go for ondansetron Protonics is kind of just pretty standard to help with these patients and then reglan is pretty standard as well with our fluids From otirine, I feel like it's not used as much, at least where I work, but I know it's still out there and probably something people still give a lot as well. And that's going to help with the concurrent GI signs for most post-op patients that could include gastric reflux, retching, nausea, vomiting, and all that stuff um, will really prevent you from being able to introduce enteral nutrition to your patients. So I always say eliminate all the risk factors, especially since our patients don't talk to us. So if they're not trending in a positive way. to And the goal really is for any critical care patient or IC patients to get them home. So if they're not trending towards trying to go home, start with pain management first making sure that their incision site looks okay making sure that they're moving and walking making sure that they're eating and that they're not nauseous and the more you start to work with the patients you'll start to develop pattern recognition just like I'm sure you do in anesthesia like you know when a patient is going to start to tank or start to do better same thing you can tell by their posture the way that they're you know standing if they're uncomfortable or if they look at the food and they start smacking their lips or if they turn their face away you know listen to them and don't just because you want them to eat doesn't mean that they're necessarily ready to eat. And then the other thing that I talked about at our conference, not not only in relation to nutrition but also into in the ER and triaging is to utilize your owners. Encourage your owners to come in when appropriate to help get their animal to eat. You know, they don't know us as much as we love them. They may not necessarily love us back. So I always ask the service or my service if well when the owner visits, if we can. They can bring their own food from home, or bring some if we don't have it. Or we can ask them, is there something I prefer? Chicken, whatever it is. My dog eats kale. Don't ask what he does, and have them give them that extra TLC to make them feel better, so that they can go home. Because the faster they go home, the less busy we are. Right?
0: No, I think that's a really good point, and that's I was hoping you would bring that up because I think that that's probably something we do forget. We do a lot of intake, and when we t- we usually talk to owners about you know, what what medication is this patient on? But I don't think we have in-depth conversations about food. Um, And for me, I had an owner, and this kind of changed the way I talk to owners now, is I ask them about the feeding. Not only what type of food does this patient get, but also are you with the patient, or, or not patient, are you with your pet when they're getting fed, right? Because sometimes we have cats that are social eaters, right? They get fed up on the counter and while they're eating, they get pets. So I've had cats in hospital that if I know that they do better with somebody there, like I will scratch their head or like give them a pet while they're eating. And you can see that they they will eat more. It's it's kind of like, I wanna know what are those feeding habits as well. Do they eat once a day? Do they eat multiple times a day? Do they have free access? Are they maybe it's a cat that does not like wet food, right? We have every once in a while these cats that only like the crunchies. So we got to talk to the owners and find out as well.
1: As much as I'm a proclaimed of cat lady, I always get shamed when oh, even more cat lady ICU nurse comes in and she's like, this cat's not eating. What is this wet food? And then she you know, throws the wet food out of the cage and brings crunchies <laughs> over and the cat's like, yang, 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 yang. and I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. It still happens. Like I, You know, when you're so busy, it's like an oversight. You're like, damn it, it was dry food. (laughs) Yes.
0: I know, and I you just assume that every cat wants like you know a can full of like fishy smelling stuff, Uh, but I think we've all been there when we have cats that either they want to eat dry food, or the worst is when you put something in their cage after you know you're trying to get them to eat, and they immediately like the little dogs. I feel like my dog would do this. uh, They like immediately start burying it. They're like, absolutely not, get this out of my cage. And I think that's an important thing to note as well is. If you have a patient, like let's say you put some food in their in their enclosure with them and they start burying it or they move away from it, I always tell people, then take it out of there. Like they're not ready for it. Which I know, like you said, it feels like, you know, against what we're trying to do. But if they're really not ready for it, we don't want to create a food aversion you know, they're in this stressful situation, we're giving them this food, they're like, this is making me even more nauseous and upset. So just take it. Sometimes
1: you have to get creative as well. Let's say you have a patient that does want to eat. But you know, just they don't just they just don't trust you. You know what I've seen before a few times, and I've kind of used in the wheelhouse. And they're a little naughty, right? They don't want you to get in the cage, but they're hungry. And you're like, how am I going to do this? I've seen nurses use the uh, tongue depressors, you know, our universal utensil for eating food ourselves (laughs) in the clinic, using Mm -hmm. the tongue depressors as like chopsticks to like feed the dogs (laughs) that are trying to like, you know, be a little naughty. And I I thought it's like Mm -hmm. the creativity that happens in the ward sometimes when you're just so dedicated and you want to get these patients to eat (laughs) is pretty hilarious.
0: It's probably one of those things that you do have to get a little bit creative. I mean, who in veterinary medicine hasn't made a makeshift fork, spoon, or chopsticks out of tongue depressors at some point? Like that's, you know, if if that's not on your vet med bingo card, then uh, you're doing it wrong. You need to, (laughs) or maybe you work at a place that actually has real utensils. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I definitely remember eating like some Chinese food with some, Snapped up tongue depressors and listen. You do what you got to exactly. do, um, but I think so. Let's say, Felisa, I I think that uh, another good point that you made is not only talking to the owners, but having the owners come in. Um, in your experience, do you feel like have you seen this work where you have owners come in and maybe they bring their own food? Um, A, have you seen this work, and then B, what do you think? are the reasons why we don't do this more often and how could we be doing this more often yeah. for our pets. I've absolutely seen it work. I'll start before that I'll say just make sure
1: that you've gone through your checklist. Make sure that your patient's pain is under control. Make sure that its medications are being given at this, you know, at the appropriate time. You're not missing anything. Make sure that their cage is clean, that the patient is clean. I soapbox about this a lot that, you know, if we I know that we're so busy I understand completely, but always remember that, you know, these patients are pretty helpless when they're post-op or when they're very sick. And as much as it can be a little, you know, exhaustive, exhausting to have to clean them all the time, you know, just just try your best or use the help around you and try to look at all the treatments that you have to do and kind of prioritize. What do I need to get done now? that will help save me some time so that I can give some of that patient care. Cause not only is it the the best standard of care for them, it's going to make you feel really rewarded about your job, but animal, you know, feels refreshed and like feels safe and clean. And I don't know, maybe I'm just projecting this for myself, but it's been like 13 years of animals. So I do believe in this. I do think that once they start to look, look better, that they feel better. And so make sure that that's all in order before you have an owner come in, explain to the owner, how this patient has been on your shift or if you've been with it for a few days, like, Hey, you know, I met Phoenix a few days ago when he first came in, you know, he was having a rough recovery, but little by little, we've been doing motility. We've been giving his, he's been taking his medications nicely so that the owners, you know, start to really feel relax cuz they are they're all super stressed. You know, I know if my dog was or cat was in the hospital, I'd be super distressed even even though I'm a technician. Just let them know the progress of their pet and how closely you're working with the doctors and the rest of the team to ensure that, you know, Phoenix gets home or whatever your pet's name is. And then give them the things that they need. Ask, you know, give them the bowls, give them a nice area to sit in, in the ICU, if the patient can't leave the ward or facilitate, use your team to facilitate a private booth visit so that they can go into a room and have that, have that, uh, that visit privately, just emphasizing the importance, like, all right, this is a lumen. I can't tell you in the beginning when I didn't go through this whole spiel and I, and I tell, and I'm saying these very specifically because learn from my mistakes, or I sent a patient off to a room and then, You know, thirty minutes later, an assistant or client service representative came back. They're like, "Was this? This was in the room, and it's like a lumen hanging." (laughs) Like, darn it. (laughs) So, explain to the owners. You know, these are fluids. We can't have your pet moving around, he has to stay in a specific area. So set everyone up for success. You as a, as a nurse, as a technician, you're the facilitator of these things, of your patient's visits, of your patient's care. And so you should, whatever you would tell a new intern or a new technician coming in is the same information you should tell the owner. And they are really receptive to it. So I think those are the, the big highlights that fill them in on what's going on. Obviously, don't get into the gritty of blood work and things like that. Make it all about your nursing care and explain that. Say, you know, I've you know, I've been Phoenix's technician, nurse for however amount of days. I just want to fill you in on the nursing care. And that's something that my previous boss taught me. I would listen to her say that, and then I just kept replicating that. And, you know, I think the, the, the reason that it doesn't happen to answer your second question is because there's a lot of fear. I think when I when I train a lot of new nurses or technicians, they they always say, Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm in Vet Med and I chose critical care because I really don't want to talk to owners, which I, I get, it can be intimidating. And I think that comes from just being nervous that, that people won't recognize our job or what we do. And some people get really fatigued from hearing, Oh, well, you just help, you just hold the animals for the doctors. But that's the opportunity, these intimate conversations for you to explain what our profession is to the public. And I promise you, the more you do this, the more impressed people will be and you, the more career satisfaction you will have. I am I always introduce myself to clients as, hey, I'm Feliza. I am a licensed veterinary technician here in the ER. I'm here to triage your pet. Or I'm a veterinary technician here in the ICU. I'm your, uh, your pet's caretaker. And these are all the things that I work on in collaboration with the doctor. And when you present yourself that way, I, f- I think and I've heard from clients that they trust you because you're professional, you're ready, you're prepared and you have all the information and they know that someone legit and a fish is like taking care of their pet. And it can be a little uncomfortable at first. Like remember the first time you asked for a code on a patient, it was probably pretty scary. But the more you do it, it just becomes secondhand nature. And, you know, people people will notice that. You know, I that's kind of I think my opinion where that comes from. So love to hear your thoughts on what you think.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point. I always say that I'm coming at it from a pain management perspective. And without the clients, I can't do my job, right? I rely on them for so much information. I mean, you know, all the information they're giving me about that pet's daily activity and everything, they know this pet's daily routine and like use it. They're gonna be the one who knows how this pet likes to eat. So if you're having trouble, especially post-operatively getting a patient up and eating, I think making the owner a part of it is super, super important because I'm sure that the client has a lot of information that is going to help us. I think these are all really good points. So one thing before we go, I just have one more question for you. And this is really about, have you seen and do you have any advice for when we need to start a prescription diet? Like, let's say that we need to, we want to start a prescription diet. I've kind of heard from people that if we start a prescription diet, we really shouldn't be doing that while the patient's hospitalized. Um, do you have any information or thoughts on that?
1: No, I was taught, so th- like they've been on it for a while, you mean?
0: No, I mean, like, we, like, let's say this patient was hospitalized. Um, maybe I'm going to go off top, not on the surgery patient anymore. Like maybe let's say it is isn't a true like ICU patient and maybe they were a DKA and now they're stabilized. And now we're like, okay, we need to start them on a prescription diet for this, you know, or they came in and they were like kickectic old kidney cat and now they're stabilized and we're going to send them home and now they need to be on a prescription diet. What are your thoughts on starting prescription diets while they're still in the clinic, uh, or waiting until they're home and slowly transitioning. Um, What do you guys do? What's your practice? Got it. So that, in the beginning, I made the mistake.
1: I think it's the mistake to start those diets right away. And that uh, directly contributed to like food aversion because they were not used to it. And some of these diets are pretty gross, to be honest, like the ZD, KD. Like, I think that there are a lot more options now that accomplish the same thing, but 100% do not recommend doing that in the ward, that's something that is not urgent. You know, the priority is to get the patient hemodynamically stable and home. So get them to eat, and then you can re- instruct the owner, just like you know, with dogs and any other diet, to slowly transition the food over. Um, so that's a that's that's definitely a difficult one. It, it becomes more complicated when the patient has is presenting for anorexia, is potentially like a feeding tube candidate, and things like that. But I would say if that's that's a separate conversation but in the hospital i wouldn't recommend starting zd right away cuz that's a pretty gross one so my recommendation my experience is to wait until the, the pets are home to begin that transition
0: okay cool um i think that's all felicia thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and talk about icu care and talk about all these little things that i you know again i I don't know. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna offend any of the VTS nutrition people, but you know, I do think maybe it gets forgotten about, especially with ICU, ER, and anesthesia, because you know, maybe it's not as sexy as the other topics. But I think to your point, as far as you're right, Some of these things are not urgent. We just need to get this patient up eating and get them back to where they can go home. And so I think that nutrition plays a huge role in that. And we as technicians together with the clients can be making a huge difference uh, specifically when it comes to this. So I thank you for your expertise and thank you for being a guest today on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Tash. I'll see you soon.